Welcome to the City Church Podcast, your home for all of the audio and sermons from City Church St. Petersburg. We meet every week at 10 a.m. at the Sundial AMC Movie Theater, 151 2nd Avenue North in beautiful downtown St. Petersburg, Florida. is a famous basketball coach. I couldn't tell you how to say his last name, uh, but he just goes by Coach K, and he's one of the most famous college basketball coaches of all time. A few years ago, he was evaluating a blue-chip, five-star, can't-miss recruit. And they were at a camp where they were all training in basketball together. And it was late in the evening, and it was a camp where they were all training outdoors. And all of a sudden, it started to rain. Not hard, not pouring down, but but something at about a drizzle. And the coaches who were running the camp decided that they would keep going, that they only had 15 to 20 minutes left of this, and that they would keep going. And Coach K did something really, really strange as it started to rain. As it started to rain, he went over and hid in the bushes beside the basketball court. Later, one of the coaches who ran this camp said, Hey coach, I gotta ask you, why is it that you, that you went and hid in the bushes when it started to rain? And he said, Oh, that's very simple. I'm recruiting this player over here. And I wanted to see, as it started to rain, if he stayed on the drills, if he kept doing what he needed to do, if he stayed in the huddle with the people that he needed to stay in the huddle with, or did he give up? Did he say, eh, it's raining, I'm going to give up? He was that detailed focus as he recruited this kid. He wanted to know, what did he do at the end of a practice, at the end of a long day, at the end of the night? He was absolutely obsessed with the details of his life. And as we look at so many leaders, so many people who who are, are leaders in their industry, what we see is they're focused on that same level of detail as well. There's a story of Henry Ford that said when he was interviewing anybody for an executive position at Ford Motor Company, he would take them out to lunch or dinner. And he had a single thing that he was looking for when he took them out for lunch or dinner. If they would salt any of their food before they tasted it, Henry Ford thought that they were unworthy to be an employee and an executive at his company. That level of detail. It's also interesting that that so many teachers, even, even teachers at an elementary school level, can predict the educational outcomes of children when they are very young. Because they understand the details. They've seen kids before. They know what's going to happen. And the same is true of all of us. All of us have something that we know all of the details about. I already mentioned and made jokes about, about Wyatt and Jane's level of detail and understanding of Auburn football. And it's easy to see when it's sports or something like that. Ah, yes, I know all the details of that. But all of us have those things that we know. We all have those things where we can get into the detailed nitty-gritty of something. And when we start to evaluate decisions, we want to get into that level of detail. 
we want to figure out exactly how much info we can get. In fact, an easy way to show that somebody is shady in a movie, a book, or a TV show, or in real life, is to have them be coy or withholding of details. Imagine you went to buy a car, and it was a used car, so you said, hey, can I see the car facts? And the person who you were talking to said, well, uh, yeah, yeah, I've got it. I've got the Carfax, and it's fine. I just, I just left it at home, and I can't show it to you right now. But why don't you just buy the car now, and, and then I'll send it to you later? What immediately do you think about that person? What immediately happens in your mind? Mm-mm, no, red flags. Something shady is happening. If you won't give me the details of this, no. No, some of you have had job interviews. And when all of a sudden they're coy about what your salary package is going to be, when like, well, we'll figure out salary later, what do you immediately do in your mind? You immediately start to back off. You immediately start to put up walls. Mm, I don't know if I want to work for somebody who can't show me the details of this situation. And just about every significant situation in our lives, we want details in advance, before we commit to anything. And what's interesting is this is true of the way that we approach God as well. When it comes to God, we will only follow God. We only want to follow God when we know all of the details. Yes, God, I'll follow you if you tell me all the details of what that means. But the hard, cold reality is God does not always give us that level of detail. God does not always tell us everything about what our future holds. Many times, God points us in a direction and says, go, and that's all we get. And that is hard for us to follow. Because we don't just want a compass. We want a detailed map. We want to know how many steps we're going to take. We want to know when we're going to get there. We want the ways, which is, a, for those of you who don't know, it's a, it's a map app for your phone that tells you exactly how long it's going to take to get there. It is scarily detailed. It knows how many accidents are on the way, where there's a small piece of tire in the road. Every little detail is found on ways. We want that from God, and instead, oftentimes, all he does is give us a direction. This is not just true of us. This was true of Abraham as well. I want us to look at the story of Abraham and how his faith works, how the writer of Hebrews teaches us about his faith. So what we're going to do in just a second is I'm going to read a passage out of Genesis 12. And then all of us are going to read the first three verses of Hebrews chapter 11 together. And then we'll conclude by me alone reading Hebrews 11, 8 through 10. I want us to hear the story of the details that God has given to Abraham. So stand with me, if you would. And let's hear this portion of the story of Abraham. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. 
And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abraham went as the Lord had told him and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's sons, and all their possessions they had gathered, and all the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent. And with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. Now let's read from Hebrews chapter 11 altogether. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the convictions of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. And now hear about Abraham again. By faith, Abraham obeyed. When he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance, and he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. City Church, this is the word of God written years ago and intended for us this morning. You may be seated. The devil is in the details. But Abraham didn't get many in this story, did he? In our minds, oftentimes, at least for me, when I think about Abraham, when I think about the the patriarchs, the fathers of the faith, I think of the whole earth as basically being a desert. Like, I know that wasn't the case, but in my mind, that's where my mind kind of goes to. And not only is that where my mind sort of goes, I pretty much assume that there's like no cities. I mean, there wasn't like big population centers, like, like everybody just lived like, you know, everybody just had to camp all the time. And that was just the way it is, you know, and okay, fine. But, but that's not the case. And it's significant that that's not the case for the story of Abraham. Because in the story of Abraham, it starts in what we would now call Iraq between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. And where he's at, where those moments are that we find Abraham in the beginning of this story is the population center of the world. He's living in the equivalent of New York City. This enormous metropolis, this huge city. And God calls Abraham out of this huge city to go. To go to a land that he is going to show him. And what's interesting 
is he kind of just points. He kind of just says, Hey, Abraham, I'm going to give you land. And it's going to be great. So just go that way. That's all we get. Does, does Abraham get details of, hey, when, when you get to the, the Sea of Galilee, make a left. Right? And you'll go down a little bit. And then once you get to the, the, this part of the country, make a, no, he's just told, leave and go where I'm going to show you. And he's not given any of the details. You see, what's significant about Abraham's faith is that he obeyed without knowing the details. Abraham obeyed God without knowing any of the details. And that's, that's tough for us to think about. That's tough for us to believe. Because most of us don't live our lives like that. Uh, for some of us, uh, what we do is we sort of think of God as distant and uncaring. That God doesn't care about all this stuff in my life. Yeah, sure, God cares about like big things like, you know, I'm pretty sure he's making sure meteors don't hit us. You know, and I'm pretty sure like he's in charge of like big stuff. But my life, my house, my job, my kids, eh, I don't think he really cares. He's not involved that much. Now, some of us are here and, and we're Christians and we would say, oh, yes, but that's, that's not me. That's not what I believe, Justin. That may be what other people believe, but not me. I, I know that God is in charge of my life. But what happens is, for most of us, we live our lives as if we believe God is distant and uncaring. And one of the ways, one of the really subtle ways that we do this is by claiming to know details that God hasn't given us. Claiming to know that God is telling us something when God has not, in fact, told us that thing. Point in case, the people who can be most guilty of this are religious leaders. How many times have you heard other people, not me, other people say that God has told them something very specific? This is how we're supposed to do this. God has told us 16 is the sweet number for a theater. Let's see what I did there. <laughs> that, that, that we know this. Let's be honest. We don't. We don't. We cannot claim to know details that God hasn't given us. And when we do, we're just grabbing for power. We're just grabbing for security. And what's interesting about the story of Abraham, where is he going? He's going from a place of power, the city. He is going from a place of security where he has a house that is settled and he is leaving that. And he's going somewhere he doesn't know. And he's just taking his backpacking tent. Okay, it was probably a little bit more than that. But he's going to go and live in tents in a city, in a country, in a countryside where he doesn't know where he is going. We cannot claim that we have been given details by God when we haven't. That is the very thing that God warns us against when he says, don't take my name in vain. 
Don't be loose. Be serious about the way that you say things about me. But Abraham didn't get the details. And he just got a direction to go in. And for most of us, that's not enough. Most of us want more details than God's willing to give us. And so here's what we do. We begin to bargain with God. Okay, God, look. I'll do these nice things for you if you will just please fill in some details for me. God, I'll I'll make a sweet donation to the church, God, if you would just tell me the answer to these five questions about my future. God, look, if I could just know that my kids are going to turn out okay, here's what I'm going to do, God. I'll do these things for you if you will do this. We try to engage God in quid pro quo. Something we've heard a little bit about this week. And we try to bargain with him. We try to trade our obedience for details. In fact, some of you are holding your obedience to God hostage until he gives you the details that he's just not going to give you. You're holding your obedience hostage. God, I'm going to do whatever I want to do until you give me these details. Church, if, if God didn't give Abraham, the father of our faith, if God did not give Abraham a detailed playbook, why are you so arrogant to think that he owes you one? And it's hard because when we don't have the details, we we don't have something that we can see to go on. When we don't have the details, we don't have an exact map. When we don't have the details, we have to live by faith. Oh. Isn't that precisely the point? By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go to a place that he didn't know. So even when Abraham gets there, even when Abraham gets to the promised land, he still is sojourning around. He still is living like a stranger. I mean, you could say that in so many ways, the story of Abraham is really intense. (laughs) I'm so sorry. I mean, no, I'm not. I'm I'm not. But, But think about it. This detail that kind of comes up in both the the Old Testament passage this morning and the New Testament passage keeps reminding us that he lived his life in tents. Why is that a detail that keeps coming up? In my mind, in my mind, the reason for that is because everybody lived in tents. In my mind, when I think of ancient Israel, everybody had a tent, but that's just not the case. Many people had homes. Many people had a settled place to live. In fact, for him to live in a tent, especially for a man who was wealthy, was quite frankly strange. It was strange for him to live in a tent because it meant that he was never settled. He never had a home address that he stayed at for that long. And day after day, over and over, 
He lives in this tent. In fact, there's that one, one passage in, in Genesis 12 that we read that says at one point he set up his tent with Shechem on one, or Bethel on one side and Ai on the other. Can you imagine waking up, looking out your window and seeing cities of people who have homes, who are settled on both sides? And here you are living in a tent. Because God said to leave the city that you were a part of, to leave that place and go to a new one. And oh, by the way, when you get there, you don't get a house. You get a tent. Knock yourself out, Abraham. Go do it. You see, this faith is not, our faith is not a one-time decision. If we're going to follow God, it's something that we have to keep choosing over and over and over. Every time we look at the houses of the people in AI, every time our tent flap blows open and we wish we had a door, over and over and over, Abraham had to choose to live by faith. This idea that Abraham lived in tents and lived an unsettled life was just as countercultural then as it would be now. It's just as strange then because there is something significant to being settled, to being rested, to putting down roots. It's something that our culture aspires to. It's something that we all aspire to. Think about it. How many of us are chasing after just the right settled amount of employment. If I just finally get this promotion, then everything's going to be okay and my life's going to kind of mellow out and it'll be all right. If I, if I just get the raise where I have just the right, everything's going to be okay. If I'm just wealthy enough, then things will be okay. I've got to get just the right number of kids or just the perfect lack of kids so I don't have to deal with kids. I just have to get the right number of dogs and then everything's going to be settled. We keep chasing these ideas and all of these ideas that we're chasing are the ideas of being settled and self-determined. After all, that is the American dream. I have roots. I can do what I want. I'm settled and I can self-determine. I can choose. I can choose where I have dinner tonight. I can choose how full my fridge is. I can choose to send my school to whatever, my kids to whatever school they want. We want to be settled and self-determined. That is the American dream. That is not the dream of Abraham or of God. God sends the father of the faith out, out of a population center, and he sends him to the countryside. And he tells him that you're going to live this entire time as a pilgrim. You're going to live this entire time and you're not going to be settled. And you're not going to be able to be self-determined. He has to keep living like someone else is in control. He is impermanent. Someone else has to control everything else around him. And what Abraham kept choosing is to say, yes, I believe that that someone who is in control is God and not me. So why did Abraham do this? Why did Abraham make this sort of decision 
to live in tents, to, to, to leave his home country, to leave his family? Why did he choose to live by faith? What was he looking for? It's interesting the words that are, that are used to describe what he's looking for in Hebrews. He did this because he was looking for a city with foundations whose builder and architect was God. That sounds a little bit strange to us. He was looking for a city with foundations. Well, um, yeah. Don't all cities by necessity have foundations? Isn't that sort of what you build cities on? But he was looking for something else. That rootedness, that permanence that he was looking for was not something found in this world. He was looking forward, not to his roots in this world, but his roots in the world that is to come. He was focused on another city. Not Shechem, not Ai, not Bethel, or any of the cities, other cities he traveled by. He was focused on the heavenly city. And that's the call to us. Because the cities of this world will always be beyond and out of our control. The city that is to come, the city with foundations that we can't see, is a place where God is always in control. The cities of this world now are places where power is fleeting and power is abused. The city to come is a place where all power, glory, and honor belong to him who sits beside the throne of God, Jesus. The city, and this is true whether it's a large city, a small city, a town, the cities of this world, the rootedness of this world is always unsafe. In the city that is to come, there are no more tears. There are no fears. Every tear is wiped away. Every fear is gone. In the cities of this world, our pleasures are, are muted and deceptive. They always overpromise. They always underdeliver. In the city that is to come, there are pleasures at the right hand of God forevermore. In this world, our friendship and our love is always merit-based. It's always based on how well we perform, how well we love one another. We will always be disappointed that someone does not love us as much as we want them to. We will always be disappointed that our friends are not who we want them to be, that they don't always respond in the way that we want. We will always be disappointed because our spouses are not perfect. But in the city that is to come, there is one there who loves us more because his love for us is not based on our merit. It's not based on us proving ourselves. It's not based on us earning it. In fact, here's how much the mayor, the one who runs the king of the city that is to come, loved us. Jesus loved us so much that he left that city. And it's interesting the language that the Apostle John uses to describe when Jesus came to us. You know what, you know what John 1 literally says? It literally says that Jesus came and pitched his tent among us. Jesus left the heavenly city. He left the city that is to come. He left the New Jerusalem. He left that and pitched his tent 
here, where he was a stranger, where he was a foreigner, where he was an outsider. He pitched his tent among us. And being found in human flesh, he humbled himself to the point of death. As Philippians says, even death on a cross. He did that. He lived in a tent. He lived the life unrooted, the life of faith that even Abraham fails to lead. He lived the life that we could not live so that he could secure for us a place in the city that is to come. And so when we begin to trust in him, our lives begin to look different. Because all of a sudden, we begin to look like strangers and pilgrims. This doesn't mean we have no interaction with the world around us. This doesn't mean that we sort of draw away and go out to the desert and live literally in tents. This doesn't even mean that we get RVs and live in RVs. No, what this means is that we begin to bless others. Remember, remember what God said to Abraham as he sent him out? Remember the only details that he got? The details that he got is, go to a land that I'm going to give your children. I'm going to give your kids land, but I want you to go there now. And when you go there, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to bless you. Why? So that you're a blessing. The reason why we are sent to be pilgrims here in St. Petersburg is not so that we can suck up all the oxygen of grace. It's not so that we can be really great people. The reason why we are sent to be pilgrims here in St. Petersburg is so that we might be a blessing to others. So that we might love and serve them. So that we might selflessly give our time, our talents, and our treasures away. So that we might bless the city of St. Petersburg. We want City Church to be a church that does not suck in blessing, but sends it out. And the reason why we can do that is that because we are freed from the allegiances to this world. We are not beholden to the, to the God of foundations of this world. We're not beholden to being settled. We're not beholden to being self-determined. We're beholden to Jesus. And so we're free. We're free to let our reputation be ruined by hanging out with people who others would say are less than us. We're free to have our reputation ruined by choosing work that does not necessarily make as much money as possible. We're freed from the the need to prove ourselves to others because the only one that matters already approves of us. City Church, as we think about the way that God has called us, may we live by faith, even when we don't know all the details. Even when not everything is laid out perfectly for us. Even when we don't know what's going to happen, may we follow Him in being pilgrims, and sojourners in this life. May we look for another city. A city that's foundations are in heaven, whose architect and builder is God. Let's pray.